Welcome to Soil to Soil, a podcast connecting the dots in the life cycle of clothing and material culture, brought to you by Fibershed. Each episode offers a look at how and why our community is working to cultivate fiber and dye systems that build soil and protect the health of our biosphere. In this episode, we're discussing the origins of Fibershed, from a community source wardrobe challenge to an organization working with communities in Northern California and beyond to shift the carbon imbalance in our atmosphere and increase the opportunities to strengthen regional supply networks. I'm Jess Daniels, and I'm joined by Rebecca Burgess, whose voice you will recognize from past podcast episodes and many aspects of Fibershed's work. Rebecca is the founder and executive director of Fibershed, and she also serves as chair of the board for the Carbon Cycle Institute. She has over a decade of experience writing and implementing a hands-on curriculum that focuses on the intersection of restoration ecology and fiber systems. She has taught at Westminster College, Harvard University, and has created workshops for a range of NGOs and corporations. She is the author of the best-selling book, Harvesting Color, a bioregional look into the natural dye traditions of North America. And, more recently, Fibershed, growing a movement of farmers, fashion activists, and makers for a new textile economy, released in 2019. She has built an extensive network of farmers and artisans within our region's Northern California Fibershed to pilot the regenerative fiber systems model at the community scale. In today's episode, we wanted to bring you with us in conversation as we trace the threads from the days when Rebecca was collaborating with local farmers and artists to develop a prototype wardrobe that was completely locally grown and made, to connecting with communities around the world for shared visions of locally farmed fashion and textiles. We talk about how the vision and idea of soil to soil fiber systems came to be, and then walk through a few different ways that Fibershed is working to align and uplift pieces of the system to make it possible for more people to choose, wear, and work in a regional fiber economy that contributes to ecosystem restoration. wanted to start the podcast with talking about the roots of Fibershed and the beginning that you started 10 years ago with a project that was sort of a personal experiment and a challenge to dress yourself entirely locally for one year. And so I was wondering if you could walk us back in time and share a little bit about how the one-year wardrobe came to be and what, if you can remember, sort of what creating local clothing felt like at that time. As you're asking that question, I'm reflecting on those experiences and what those experiences looked and felt like. And um, yeah, it was <laughs> 10 years ago now that I recall being um, just in the, the finalizing stages of collecting dye recipes, natural dye recipes from different parts of the North American continent focused on the United States. And I was compiling recipes from um, the southwest from from rose deadman and she was near uh, windrock arizona part of the navajo nation and dye recipes from two women named carol lee (laughs) one in wyoming one in missouri and reflecting on the practices whether they were from first nations people or 
European peasant immigrants, all these people's different relationships to plants were so defined by their geographies and the colors that we were getting during these dye sessions together, traveling to these women's homes and working with them and their families and thinking about like this endemic color, this color that comes from the Northern Rockies, from the beetle kill pine forests, which is like, like a climate change color, I might call it, or um, elderberry, goldenrod, and pokeberry just growing in mass on the side of the roads in Missouri and harvesting those plant species in such abundance because the climate was so much more um, wet than what I was used to or digging for in the sand for something called wild carrot, huge tuber that comes out of a region that has almost no precipitation per year to speak of in the, in the desert Southwest. And, and thinking about such unique ethnobotanical relationships and then traveling home, looking at my own body and how I was not head to toe by any means covered in my own um, natural dye interests. And then furthermore, I was not covered in uh, fibers that were at all even remotely traceable to place, any place that I could imagine. And uh, prior to this, I had spent time in places, um, primarily in the Indonesian archipelago, as well as in um, Northern Thailand, um, Vietnam, and Lao and those countries who were still um, articulating their millennia and multiple millennia old natural dye traditions and fiber traditions, those communities were growing their cotton and silk um, in sometimes just right outside in kind of like what we might call a market garden or a small homestead garden, their fibers, their food. It was all being woven together into one land management process that was pretty small scale. And then multiple generations of men and women were harvesting, they were processing, they were weaving, they were sewing, embroidering, and fitting clothes on the body, all from, you know, soil to skin within even a one mile radius. And so I, I really thought about just the roots of, of my ancestors and in some ways my bloodlines are so far from the North Atlantic home base where I hearken from. <laughs> and so I was really, I know I'm, a, I'm from this, this immigration line that doesn't really have a deep connection to place. And I've been seeking that my whole life. And part of that, it, part of that connection to place really comes from your material culture. It comes from relating to the land that produces your food understanding the nuances of your watershed um, and knowing how to care for those things so that they last for multiple generations or you know even thousands of years of human generations you want to work with your place so it sustains you and all the other life forms in perpetuity for as long as possible and you know all that <laughs> combined i thought oh my goodness you know i should really be rooting myself more intently to where I live. And I love weaving. I'm a trained weaver. I am a trained hand spinner, um, self-trained natural dyer. I, I could bring those skills together and um, develop an endemic wardrobe 
that is like what so many people across the world have been producing for so long together in community. And so the next question was how to build that community. I started asking people um, about farms and ranches that grew material and just asked a lot of questions and showed up in a lot of random locations. And li literally I sleuthed out the people, the dyes, the fiber in the community. And I had no prior contact. I had no, I was not um, in a ranching family. I was not in a highly craft oriented family, you know, just really was about investigating. And it was kind of like a research project. And then the clothing came together through all those relationships which was an inadvertently yet lovely community. And then their relationships, design school student mixed with the rancher from Napa Valley would make, you know, okay, here's your leg warmers. <laughs> and then um, I, everyone was paid. I did run a Kickstarter campaign. Um, so I, I really wanted to make sure everyone's time was, was honored and valued and that people were paid and documented. So um, Paige Green, uh, photographer extraordinaire, came and traveled with me to all of these landscapes and she photo documented everybody. And I got through a good amount of writing. I, my goal is to write a long form journal article about every single member of the community. I probably got through a good 60% because <laughs> I was so taken with everyone's stories. I could have written a book. So that that was the community and then the the clothing was was beautiful it was in some cases what people would call very rustic but it caught people's attention in ways that they didn't understand why i remember um i was in grad school at the time i would often meet artists and farmers even like on the side of the road to exchange goods you know it was like this you're schlepping materials everywhere you're your own distribution line and, you know, you, oh, I got some hand-spun cotton from Sally Fox's farm. Okay, I'm going to take this over to so-and-so, and they're going to they're gonna, um, knit it, and then I'm going to take it to so-and-so, and they're going to dip-dye it. And I was just moving around this 150-mile radius in north-central California, like a, a pollinator pollinating and moving all these materials around, building this community. And um, I remember I went to, I think it was a class or, you know, group of people later one day in an afternoon session, an academic session, and we were discussing something. And this woman, Carolyn, she looked at me and she said, were you on the side of road of Sir Francis Drake and Kent Avenue this afternoon, just exchanging a brown bag of something? And I said, yeah, <laughs> I was. And she said, I literally was driving down the road and I was caught by the color of your clothing. I didn't even know it was you. I was just literally caught. I saw these earthen tones contrasted against the redwood trees. And I was just enamored and I didn't know why. And then I was like, oh, it's Rebecca. <laughs> of course, she's wearing these clothes that everyone knew about. But I think that, that comment stuck with me that these clothes you know, on, on, a, on a level that might be more quantum physics, they vibrated out something to people that you could feel was different and compelling. And to wear these clothes was very compelling and very interesting and sometimes uncomfortable and sometimes very comfortable. But I definitely was not creating a wardrobe based on comfort, nor was I creating a wardrobe based on ease. There was nothing easy about it. But the challenge and the difficulty, both in creating the wardrobe and sometimes even the difficulty in trying to wear it, um, was very curating of my character. 
would say. I learned how to endure and grow and it, it crafted me kind of like it whittled away at some of the things that I now see as more superficial, like identifying your own identity with your clothes. It was more like, I'm actually trying to build a community through my wardrobe. I'm not really trying to go after my clothing for reasons of taste and preference to a color or taste or preference to a texture. I'm just more systemically looking at where these things come from and trying to honor the landscape where they come from. So yeah, it was a beautiful journey. It continues. I still wear some of those clothes. I mean, I wore them so hard. Like, you know, I didn't have that many items, you know, 36 items, bathing suit, underwear, socks and such. And, um, you know, they, they got pretty worn out, but I do have some pieces still and I still wear them today. <laughs> and I think like you mentioned that sort of sense of curating it, it seemed to so quickly move beyond one person's wardrobe. Like you were sort of this, the person wearing these pieces that, like you said, it was a, a community wardrobe in a lot of ways. And um, I think, you know, that community really became the foundation for the framework that Fibershed focuses on. And um, I was curious if you could share with us a little bit how the soil to soil vision came to be, you know, from that wardrobe, from those relationships, from that sense of place to be this idea of circularity that's, I think, you know, different than other models of circularity right now. At the time of creating the wardrobe, there was this focus on the soil innately that I, I was interested in how people were grazing the landscape, if they were running alpaca or sheep or goats you know, mohair goats or angora goats, I should say. Um, I was interested in how people were doing their row crops, if they were growing marigolds, indigo, coreopsis. At the time, there wasn't a lot of flax being grown. I, I really didn't see it out there. So, you know, flax at that time was not part of the wardrobe. Since then, we've had a, a renaissance of flax growing. But I was always interested in the soil because it became very evident very quickly that if you're not focused on the soil, um, you're going to, you know, as a grazer, you're going to run out of forage for your animals very quickly if you don't thoughtfully graze. And you're going to be spending lots of your hard-earned income on imported feed. And you're probably not going to make it as a rancher or a farmer doing those kinds of things. In irrigated systems in our region, if you're irrigating a summer crop, you have to be very careful about your water use. So you have to have very, as I, I came to find out, very carbon-rich soil so you can hold that water and you can retain that water and use less irrigation. So soil's always been a focus. And it, like I said, it's just innate. If you start going to the source of your textile, if you start going to the source of your wardrobe, you grab your hands in the dirt pretty quickly. Um, so that was a feedback loop, you know, a sensorial feedback loop. I was like, oh, good fiber, good soil. If you want good fiber, if you want good color, you need good soil. You need rich soil, you need soil that's not eroding, you need microbe rich soil, you need healthy, vibrant, dark, beautiful, loamy soil. <laughs> Clay soil works okay too, I've noticed. A lot of nutrients in there. <laughs> Um, so anyway, that that's that was evident. And then moving forward, the idea of 
um, scaling this work because the other reality was the abundance of um, wool material in particular that was being underutilized or completely not utilized because of the centrality of manufacturing in the world. So much of our fiber never makes it into value added processing. It's too expensive to even get it overseas. It's not the quality the same, you know, they need such uniform quality for a lot of the milling systems. All the wool has to be white, all the wool has to be a certain staple length. And sheep are producing variegated colors and variegated staple, you know, length of fiber, that's staple length, every year, depending on drought or rainfall or access to forage. So the earth is constantly informing variability in the fiber. So I was observing that because of the heterogeneity of our fiber, which made it beautiful, which made you know, such a diversity of sheep species, such a diversity of plant types, um, defined the diversity of our fiber shed, but we couldn't get it into the manufacturing systems because of all those reasons I just mentioned. So yet then a woman named Amber Beeg and a colleague Dustin Kahn got together and we got a small grant from a, a woman entrepreneur in Silicon Valley who helped us with the Rudolf Steiner Foundation figure out what we could do with all this byproduct wool, this wool that was not being utilized. And they wanted us to analyze the supply they wanted to analyze what that supply could do, like meaning what could we wear from it, and then what manufacturing systems would need to be created to metabolize our own supply. And so when we were doing that, actually it was Amber Beeg who said, you know, this whole milling system, really, it, to me, this is a soil to soil system. We need these clothes to come from soil that is being regenerated because we were all discussing that as a team. And then we need all these clothes to be able to go back to the soil. I mean, really we, that carbon that becomes a protein in the form of wool should intrinsically, it just needs to be able to go back. And so many other things need to be able to go back to the soil. Like when we wash the wool, we're going to produce affluent, affluent, from that could carry salt from the sheep sweating. It could carry vegetable matter from the sheep getting in, in weeds and weedy seeds in its wool. Um, it could include dirt. So you have all these carbonaceous products that come off the wool, including lanolin, which you can then use for body care products. But you have all this carbonaceous material and some of it has a lot of nitrogen in it because of the wool manure that's caught in the wool is part of that. So we thought about, oh my gosh, so the, the wool mill needs to cycle back affluent. And we designed a living machine for that. So um, we worked with, at the time, I think it was John Todd's group, thinking about how to move this, this affluent from the washing of the wool through a constructed wetland, a living machine, involved in all that and then back out to the soil to irrigate landscapes that then sheep could graze. And so we were doing soil to soil design work in the milling system, but we just kind of stepped back a couple steps and we're like, but the clothing too is intrinsically soil to soil. So this idea that we're circulating the water, wherever we pull this water from, we're gonna return water to the system. 
we're going to, if we pull protein out of the system, which is basically atmospheric carbon that we've turned into biosphere-based, not we, but photosynthesis has turned it into biosphere-based carbon and the sheep turn that carbon into protein. We're going to make sure that protein can go back because we're looking to create nutrient cycles and we're trying to team up with nature to honor the existing nutrient cycles. We don't want to pull too much off the land and then never return that. And so clothing, just like food waste, you know, clothing should last a very, very, very long time. I mean, it's not perishable. It should last, it could last multiple human generations if treated well, and if it's a durable fiber to begin with. But at the end of a lifespan of a textile, the earth wants that back. <laughs> and it doesn't want plastic. It doesn't want your nylon. It would really prefer your, your biodegradable cotton, wool, rami, nettle, hemp, flax, etc. So <laughs> Soil to Soil was birthed while we were designing a fully circular uh, carbon neutral milling system for our region. And that design practice, that design charrette really came, we, we came to, to, the, to a deeper form of circularity because circularity was not just a theoretical exercise. We were living it. We were like looking at this wool that needed to go somewhere. We were looking at landscapes that were depleted of carbon. We knew that material has to return. We know that we have to compost material and bring it back to the soil. You know, it's like when you're paying attention to the rangelands and these beautiful landscapes where grazing occurs, you see that you can't just keep pulling material off. You can't just keep pulling the lamb, the wool, the sheep's milk, the cow, you know, whatever the products are you need to return things and animals naturally return manure to the soil but they also use the the nutrients in grass to create all kinds of other things and we generally use those things so again you want that phosphorus to return you want nitrogen to return you want potassium to return there's all these things we want to return to the earth and our clothing could be part of that nutrient cycle and that's what we're trying to honor so yeah, virgin materials have a huge place in the conversation of circularity. In fact, I think they're at the forefront of the circularity conversation. I think that really grounds a maybe a sort of broader and, and deeper framing of circularity because just in the past couple of years, it, 20, 2019, 2018, I would say, it seems like the fashion industry has really grabbed onto circularity as an industrial concept. And part of that is, seems like it's in recognition of the increasing awareness of the role of fashion in climate change. Um, it's covered, you know, much more seriously now than it was, I would venture to say, you know, when you started with the One Year Wardrobe Project, uh, the fashion climate connections just weren't as apparent or weren't as talked about. Um, but it, you know, I know from, from your work that connections to the nutrient cycle and to the carbon cycle specifically have been really integral to the formation of fiber shed um, between partnerships with the Carbon Cycle Institute and the Marin Carbon Project and their research on carbon farming. So I was wondering if you could share with us why you think an understanding of the carbon cycle is important to building regional fiber systems. I would say, first of all, just a, a kind of a, a molecular understanding of how carbon's working, right? So all of a sudden I was <laughs> made privy it's kind of like um, humans are like fish swimming in the ocean. They 
they don't really know the nature of the water. They're just, they're just in the ocean. They're like, oh, this is where I am. And we are just like that. We are just in our biosphere, often not understanding how much at the atomic level, things are just moving all around us. We're just completely in this dynamic system that we're often not sitting around paying too much attention to. And if anything, our lack of paying attention to it and our desire for expediency and our desire for efficiency and ease and comfort has driven a lot of our material cultural systems to be in disharmony with the way that, that carbon moves through the carbon pools. Here's what we learned. We learned that if you're designing a regional fiber system, the reason why you would want to pay attention to the carbon cycle is that, for instance, <laughs> in our fiber shed, we have lost, and this is what some of the science was able to share with us, we've lost more than half of the carbon in our, what California is so known for, those golden hills of California, those <laughs> annual grasses that turn into fuel <laughs> for fires. <laughs> That's what we now know them as, but they are beautiful hills that turn very gold, and they didn't used to do that. Those are annual grasses that were brought in from Europe through livestock when the Spanish came. But that annualization of the grasslands has meant we have lost a lot of carbon from the soil. And through further research through um, USGS, which is the United States Geological Service and the work of Dr. Laurie Nelmflint, we know that when you lose carbon, you also lose the ability for that soil to hold water. And inversely, when you increase the carbon in the soil, you increase the soil's ability to hold water. So if you lose carbon, you're losing water. If you're putting carbon in the soil, you're gaining water holding capacity. And there's a lot of, I could go in depth into why that is, but I'll stay at the surface level for, for that at the, at the moment. And so carbon is also food. It's literally, you know, we eat carbohydrates to stay healthy. Um, carbohydrates are just carbon and water. Cotton is a carbohydrate. Carrots are carbohydrates. <laughs> you're eating and wearing carbon all the time. So you know, to tie into a regional fiber system, you kind of want to know like, well, what kind of carbon am I working with here? Am I working, am I working in a way that's helping bring carbon into the soil? Am I wearing clothing that's helping, helping bring carbon into the soil? Because technically, one of the most beautiful things about moving carbon into the soil is that carbon is a finite on planet Earth, meaning the amount of carbon on our planet, it's not changing unless a rocket ship leaves the planet. That's a form of carbon that would go into outer space. Or if a meteor comes from outer space and hits the earth. That's the only way we're exchanging carbon with the cosmos. Carbon otherwise is totally finite. And the beauty of that is that everyone right now is saying, oh my gosh, there's so much carbon in the atmosphere. And everyone who says that is right. <laughs> and we have an emergency on our hands. And we have pumped way too much of the deepest core level of carbon. They call it lithosphere or fossil carbon. We've pumped so much of that into the atmosphere. And we've done so to make plastic clothing. We've done so to make nylon and polyester um, and spandex and capilene. So all of that has released enough CO2 into the atmosphere to create a, a blanket that has created 
a space where the long wave radiation of the sun is no longer able to leave the planet. We have literally created a heat blanket in our quest for gasoline, natural gas, polyester, plastic, everything, we now have an urgent situation where we have destabilized our planet. So if you're looking to do things like regionalize your economy around fiber systems, you have to take climate very seriously. You have to plan, you have to plan to adapt to the changes that are coming, but you can also design your regional economy to ameliorate the very thing that our global neoliberal, you know, whatever economy has created, which is like basically greased the wheels for capital to move very quickly into all corners of the world. And for to be simple about it, we've just been pumping carbon into the atmosphere to power industrial civilization. So as we scale into a response to that, a healthy response to solve for that, we look at decentralizing food systems, decentralizing fiber systems, repairing our watersheds, not having water move from one watershed to nourish another, but really keeping humans need to retain and restore watersheds, all this restoration work at a massive scale that needs to be done. And I say, why don't we restore our fiber systems while creating solutions to climate change? Because those things work really well together. We can put compost out on the land where the sheep grazes. And at the regional scale, we can be making our own compost. We can apply it to rangelands. Um, by doing so, we can sequester between one and three tons of carbon per acre per year on those sheep grazed landscapes with that quarter inch or half inch layer of compost. We can graze the animals, help them move through the system to make sure that the grass is resting and as it rests and is not being grazed, that grass, in, especially in the growing season, it can regrow itself. And every time a grass is green and growing, it's capturing carbon from the atmosphere. And so that process of photosynthetic carbon capture can happen really well if you manage the sheep well. Um, we can grow cover crops in our cotton fields in the winter so that the ground is not fallow. We can capture carbon out of the atmosphere when we're not growing that cotton, and we can capture carbon out of the atmosphere when we're growing the cotton. But basically, have, we can increase carbon capture by growing living plants on these, in these croplands year-round. We can do this in the hemp fields. We can do this in the flax fields. In fact, flax in California grows in the winter. So in fact, you're capturing carbon all winter long, which commonly in a lot of California agriculture, and I think in a lot of the West, people a lot of the times are leaving the ground fallow or unplanted, and there's opportunities there to capture carbon. And these are in landscapes that are producing food and fiber. Um, so to me, why design a system <laughs> in the year 2020 that isn't helping provide livelihoods in your community, helping create beautiful textiles that represent your landscape, help people ameliorate the climate crisis, and provide, again, like a restoration to, to the vision for what a rural community could look like, a community that has restored soils. Let's put that carbon we've lost in our rangelands back in. And actually in our croplands, 
we've lost far more carbon. So all the vegetable production systems that have been tilling the soil for the last couple hundred years, we have gone in some cases from 10 or 13% carbon in our soils to less than 1%. So we've lost far more carbon actually in our irrigated cropland systems than even in our rangelands. So to me, the, the solution set that we um, need to create to restore the carbon in the soil is the same solution set to ameliorate the climate crisis. And it's the same solution set that helps create an abundance of fiber in your community, which is the solution to you know, having enough fiber to justify building manufacturing, which then is the solution to job loss in rural communities. Um, and then the big enchilada is we all get to wear beautiful textiles that are made out of materials that can go back to the soil and do not shed plastic and pollute our bodies and marine ecosystems, et cetera. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, you just laid out the solution sets, which you do go into a lot, um, a lot of depth around those solutions in the book Fiber Shed, which came out in 2019. And the subtitle is Growing a Movement of Farmers, Fashion Activists, and Makers for a New Textile Economy. Um, and in the book, I think, you know, similar to so much of the work within Fiber Shed, there are examples from the Northern California Fiber Shed, kind of the original land base that you started working in and building relationships in. And looking at the Northern California Fiber Shed as a working model and an example of developing a regional fiber system. And then in the book, you also highlight strategies for expanding that model and, and that solutions that you just laid out around investing in people, investing in economic analysis, and investing in infrastructure and market development. So I wanted to um, share just one snippet from the book. You wrote, um, current textile systems are pumping out and overproducing materials at the expense of the Earth's biomes. And it's now an economic privilege to have access to non-toxic clothing and clean food. So the obvious question arises, why are we still allowing this kind of economy to exist when it has made making healthy textile and other choices too expensive for the vast majority of us? And I was wondering on that note of that kind of, we have the solution set and yet we have so many people who can't access the solution. What do you think Fibershed's role as an organization is in shifting these economic conditions and making way for the investment that's needed in these systems? That's such a powerful question. And with so many, I think there's a few facets of where the solution lies. And I think we ourselves have perhaps talked about this um, in some of our team meetings about the steps one can take to immediately address access would be to look outside of the transactional monetary economy to be able to develop um, cultural practices where we can come together in community, which has become a little harder at the moment um, to do that in person, but um, teaching and sharing skills. So the fiber shed wardrobe did this. We would have days in the backyard of my backyard where this young woman, Catherine Jolda, came and brought her bicycle powered drum carter, which she you know, powered her ability to card wool from her legs and she hooked the carding cloth and the whole carding cylinder up to the bike. She set that up in the yard and I invited all the artisans and, and textile people who were in the one year wardrobe challenge to uh, learn how to felt from her. So she, in the backyard, we just 
you know, felted, um, we, we carded, we were using uh, wool that, again, wasn't being used in our community. And so <laughs> we were using basically free wool and we were not commodifying our relationship to each other. It was not a paid workshop experience. So there are ways of skill sharing that don't need to be monetized or could be monetized very minimally just to support, you know, the teacher to, you know, gas and travel and make sure you're feeding everybody. So it's more, a little more in the sharing economy side. So um, we have also done a lot of clothing swaps, or I have in the past personally, just to circulate natural fiber clothing amongst friends and family. So, you know, that's kind of like the small S solution, but <laughs> I would say at the same time, those cultural practices should carry with us even when the big systemic changes that we know need to take place, take place. We should always have a culture of sharing skills. We should, to me, that's how indigenous communities have been able to stay so intact with their ecosystem. They pass down skills, hands-on skills <laughs> through the generations. <laughs> and I think that's a really important piece of the puzzle is cultural practice, education, and connecting young people to how to do this work too. And a system as broken as our current system, because it is very polluting and very wasteful and overproducing a lot of synthetic textile, that this, the big S solution to some of that monolithic challenge is about crafting new economic models for decentralizing the milling systems. And what I mean by new economic models is our desire to put manufacturing equipment into communities where we are actually growing the raw material. Like let's say we wanna do a scutching and hackling mill for the flax growers. That might cost, let's just say just under a million dollars. It's a lot of, of capital. Um, that traditionally we might say in many businesses you would go after investment capital to help fund that like if you were just shooting from the hip like okay well there's got to be people who would want to invest in that so what we've been looking at is what kind of money do you want to work with to rebuild these regional economies a lot of um capital uh which again there's people behind this i'm calling it capital but capital is held in systems and these systems have rules and ideas about how they want that capital returned. So we're often looking for capital, we might call it friendly capital or capital that is designed to have more friction, meaning it's willing to slow itself down. It doesn't need to exit the business quickly. Like I'm going to throw money in, grow the business fast and rapidly, maybe not sustainably, and then I, as in the investor, I'm going to get out with more money than I put in. And I need an exit strategy and I need it in three years. That is not the kind of business that we're putting on the table. We're putting on the table businesses that are designed to improve the material and I would say deeper core realities of the human experience, <laughs> like long-term livelihoods that could sustain multiple generations and again this is humanity has had this in the past we've had 
skill sets that certain families have and they trade, you know, they, they train their children and children take this on if they want to. Like, I'd like to see textiles become that multi-generational um, set of skills. If people so want that, you know, every child should get to decide. But anyway, <laughs> these mills are, to me, there shouldn't be a three-year exit strategy. There's just not the margins because the way that the global textile industry exists is that we're still paying you know, women in Ethiopia $26 a month to produce finished clothing right now. And those are considered starvation wages for, for even those in Ethiopia. But $26 a month, that's less than a dollar a day for cutting and sewing. So a traditional investor who's used to investing all over the world because capital has become, I loved what Rudolf Steiner Foundation says, capital has become friction bliss. It just moves wherever it wants. <laughs> and it can go invest in these, you know, overseas systems where you might be able to grow it rapidly while exploiting labor and land and water, and then you're out. Um, but we're trying to design systems that will be in perpetuity in that community for a long period of time. So we're looking for what we call patient capital, capital that's willing to slow down, be more friction oriented, Capital that's relational, capital that people who have capital who would like to see their community improved. So one way we did that, um, there was a group of lawyers uh, in Oakland, California. Um, their firm is called Cutting Edge Capital. And one way to do this is they developed a direct public offering to build a small mill in Ukiah, the Mendocino Wool and Fiber Mill owned by Matt and Sarah Gilbert. The direct public offering is a new structure that allows you know, someone like myself and you, Jess, to be investors. We don't need to fall under the Security and Exchange Commission law to be accredited investors. We can be what we call Main Street investors, not Wall Street investors, but Main Street. <laughs> and so the DPO was launched, I don't remember, it's like 2014 maybe, but it was successful and the whole community um, farmers and knitters and moms and pops, kids, <laughs> a lot of people pitched in. <laughs> and we have a small, very beautiful working small mill in Ukiah that has aims of growing and um, increasing its capacity, but it has its foundational capital that came from everyone in the community. And I believe our return on investment is basically, I think it's revenue based. So as the mill, makes revenue there is the potential for the investors to get two percent of that so it's a very um a very genteel approach to investment um, and then the other way we've looked at investment uh, is that a lot of times there's investment dollars that are put into um so if you have a, a philanthropic foundation maybe you have a family foundation sometimes those foundations are tied to an investment arm, meaning sometimes the, the foundation is also invested in different things that help actually fund the philanthropy, or they're separate, but they're just, you know, people who've, who have an investment arm and the philanthropy arm. Some of these families are starting to blend their mission, and they're starting to say, my philanthropy is focused on racial, climate, and economic justice. Why don't I also provide that same mission or undergird the, my investment arm in that same racial, economic, social justice mission. 
So investments, we're starting to see more of this, are being focused on not just, you know, as I don't know, Van Jones would say, the triple bottom line. <laughs> so some people planet profit is the triple bottom line. That's the, I think, the easiest way to understand it. But there are investors who are focused now on, yes, it needs to be a profitable business, but just as important to profitability, it needs to be focused on treating people well and it must treat the planet well. And I think they are, you know, there's key performance indicators for each of these investment firms that help them understand what treating people and planet well looks like. Um, so that's the other form of capital and that is known as program related investment. So your investment capital is related to the programs that you're funding in your philanthropy, but they're, they're connected. It's not that you're making money over here doing something that has a very disconnected mission from your philanthropy. So that's another way we've had mills, um, another, a small weaving mill um, that's now scaling, um, owned by Kat and Ryan Houston um, in Sacramento. That, that mill was in large part funded through that patient program related investment capital. So yes, now we need to keep cracking the doors open. <laughs> We're still in a capitalist system. We're still in a system where there's what you would call an asset class, a group of people who accumulate um, assets and accumulate that where they don't actually have to do primary work in the economy. They're not out there driving the trucks and delivering goods and services and repairing things. They're, they're, they're living off their capital and rent or dividend that's capitalism and i have a lot of critique of capitalism but i have a huge critique of the form of capitalism that american uh the american economy has perfected <laughs> the form of capitalism that we've perfected is particularly it's particularly aggressive um, and extractive in ways that i have been to other parts of the world and you know people care about their communities and their rural economies and they're not willing to just divest wholeheartedly from rural communities like you don't see that in norway you don't see that in italy i i i'm amazed at how vanquished we've allowed our small rural communities to become and there's just no need for that i think even if we were in within capitalism, I still feel like we could be more thoughtful about the way we're approaching this. And I really love the donut economics model. And there's all kinds of economists that I'm starting to really sink my teeth into to understand how we could do some redesign, even within the current system. So that investigation is ongoing. Yeah. And meanwhile, I mean, that aggressive form of capitalism is obviously alive and well in, in the greater economy. And we're also starting to really see it in, in the fiber economy or in, in these, the move to change the fashion industry to have a beneficial impact. So I'm thinking of the millions of dollars that, of investment capital that have poured into proposed material solutions like funding biotechnology and, and fibers that are synthesized in a lab and I was hoping you could tell us a little bit more about this type of fiber production and, and some of your understanding of why it's attracting this kind of disproportionate and aggressive investment. I think humans are intrinsically looking for 
to get off fossil fuels, of course. They're looking to um, find the next place where venture capital can capitalize because we have mined the earth so extensively of precious metals. We have mined the earth of fossil carbon to a huge degree. We have mined the oceans. We have mined the soils. We have mined, I would even argue, our human communities <laughs> hugely. So if you mine and you don't let those systems regenerate, and of course, mining for precious metals, that's not a regeneratable process. But even the oceans, the soils, and the human communities, we just, we've reached a lot of points of exhaustion um, for a lot of the places that we gather material for our consumption habits. And I think what ultimately this is about is trying to say that we can re retain this Western colonial standard of living, but we just need a new frontier. We need a new manifest destiny. We need a new thing to colonize. So that's why you see, you know, there's guys trying to get to Mars, and then there's also people trying to go not just out into space to, to colonize that, but then they're going very deep into the microbiome, into the smallest life forms, which is kind of like a new universe in itself, and colonize that you know, own it, patent it, you know, get a PhD to write you a patent so you can own that life form. And so the danger here for me is that in the fiber system, we're starting to see, it's not a danger to me personally, but a danger to our system is that we're starting to see these technologies that failed with the Department of the Defense. They failed with DARPA. They failed with our taxpayer dollars. Now, these folks who have these skills in splicing and dicing life and throwing patents on them and saying they own life are now getting involved in basically in the fiber and dye system. But the mindset is what bothers me as much as the technology. The mindset is we need another thing, another frontier. And these biofactories keep us from having to, you know, harm humans and you know, we can stop all this horrible stuff we've been doing. We just need to go and colonize the microbe community and we need to own them. <laughs> so you can see the same kinds of major problematic themes from the last, you know, few hundred years of industrial civilization and before that, you know, the colonization and the enslavement of people. We're, we're kind of approaching the microbial life with the same intent. And I think that the mindset is what will get us into the same set of problems and unintended consequences with yet this idea that it's all going to be okay. We can keep this standard of living. We can solve climate change. We can all keep consuming the same amount. People can still keep making all this money. We can retain the asset class. We can increase the asset class. And all we need to do is make these fermentation tanks, put them everywhere, and they will produce everything you need because we can, we can re-engineer nature to make it work. Don't think you have to change your standard of living or open your eyes to the fact that we are, you know, on unceded land and uh, enslaved labor has gotten the GDP of the United States where it is today. All of those questions just don't even get talked about in these circles. Um, and so they never check their mindset. And then I guess on the material side, 
why I find these technologies so flawed is because they totally depend on land for all of their feedstocks. And they keep purporting that they're going to engineer their way out of needing to use sugar. But at the end of the day, all this fancy talk, all these patents, all this venture capital, all these taxpayer dollars, and all of these technologies rely on sugar. And my question is, if you're gonna grow sugar, why don't you just grow cotton? If you're gonna grow sugar, why don't you just grow wool? Get the fiber right from the land. Why grow sugar, refine it through an industrial process, ship it to a fermentation tank, to a lab, where you have to maintain temperate climates, all this stainless steel technology, you have to keep the lights on, you have all these employees commuting to get there, everyone's splicing and dicing DNA, <laughs> and at the end of the day, you're importing this land-based feedstock that still puts you centered in a conversation around agriculture. And Again, it's like, it's not a lab-based technology, it's a land-based technology. It relies on the carbon cycle. Like, That's such a good point about lab-grown, quote-unquote lab-grown being really a land-grown fiber. And I think, you know, tying back to your earlier points too about uh, just the intrinsic and constant relationship we have with the carbon cycle and with the biosphere, um, unless we are, you know, shooting a rocket out of the atmosphere. Um, and I think you know, something we've been talking about as well is just that there is so much fiber, uh, in communities right now, um, you know, between not even just with the sort of pandemic supply chain disruptions that have left some farmers with excess crop on their hands, but there's all, it just in general with our, you know, fiber shed affiliate network, there are communities wondering, you know, how to move their fiber through a milling system there's all these problems we could be solving that within the fiber system. And like you mentioned earlier, that fiber shed has been illuminating since the early um, project of the California wool supply analysis. Um, so that disproportionate investment creates a lot of challenges to seeing out that vision. And I think, you know, one way we've been talking about it recently is also in, in the frame of, um, basically community sovereignty when it comes to fiber and dye systems. And so I was wondering if you could just define that concept a little bit more for us and how that might apply to material production and culture. Uh, most communities, uh, every year, there's a pulse of fiber coming off, this, off of multiple um, farms and ranches and communities across the United States and world. And most of the farmers that I speak to, 99% of them, actually maybe just all of them, they're always worried because they can't find markets. Um, and a lot of that is because the way that they need to get that material processed is through a, a manufacturing system that is nowhere near their community. And so I think this has been the, the nut issue is that communities have so much to offer raw material wise but they have so such a constrained distribution option like how to move it how to how to get it off the farm how to get it to the next place in the supply chain and because because of our trade laws being so uh, focused on helping corporations find locations in the world to do work where the labor standards are either poor or non-existent meaning standards on wages, standards on worker safety, like, you know, it's just, there's a consistent desire from 
larger businesses to um, increase their margins. And the way they do that is through squeezing somebody. And in the textile system, it's been squeezing the mills and the farmers. But um, yeah, we in the United States have, we have our own issues with labor, of course, <laughs> horrible issues, but, but we, we do have much higher standards than the global norm or average where you see most mills situated today. So I would love to see, as we pull out of the monolithic or the centralized model, we start to really see the opportunities blossom for communities to produce textiles that are endemic to their, their soil base. And I think the opportunities are that we could have, and we're starting to explore this at Fibershed. Um, there, there's a fiber shed, like a watershed or a food shed. But when it comes to manufacturing, a lot of the equipment you need is very expensive and large scale. And it needs to take a lot of material through it at once. So it can be efficient to give you a t-shirt that's not $800. <laughs> like you, you need, some efficiencies to create an accessible price point. To create those accessible price points, you need um, appropriate technologies to wash your wool, you need appropriate technologies to spin it. And the opportunity is when we do move these pieces of equipment into regions, um, one of our colleagues, uh, Nick Wenner, has called this you know, the California textile district or even a Pacific Northwest textile district or maybe there's a Great Plains textile district. And this goes beyond the idea of the intimacy we've crafted in some of our fiber sheds, but it's like a pan fiber shed approach whereby we could see multiple communities who are all close in proximity to each other, pooling their material to help get it through um, some of these manufacturing systems, which again, these manufacturing systems are, a wool washing station is gonna be $12 million. So a lot of money you would want to put it in a location where multiple communities can use it you still want it very accessible to all the rural communities but you could see how we could create a pan fiber shed approach where we all have access to that expensive equipment through pooling our resources and so those that pooling process might be we might call that a district a textile district <laughs> and that's what um I think we'll have to move towards because there will still be micro mini mills that we can put in every small fiber shed, but some of the infrastructure just might have to be a little larger scale and utilized by multiple smaller fiber sheds. And I, I see that as a reality to making this work, um, an exciting reality too. So I think that is where, you know, as we do the analysis on the costs and the throughput, the technologies are there, the fiber quality is there, the demand is there. Um, what is really left is the investment. And so that's what we're doing at Fibershed this coming year is actually preparing a few key fiber and dye entrepreneurs who have businesses that might be micro or small scale, and we're helping them scale, meaning envision what equipment they need to scale, designing the economic analysis to show that they can be successful when they scale, and then helping them get in front of the patient capital that's required to help them invest money. So that money is helping to serve for a positive outcome. And that's, that's what Fibershed is working on, is developing 
the, the idea of a textile district by uplifting the entrepreneurs in our home community. And everything I just described, that idea of lifting up existing entrepreneurs, developing districts where communities can share expensive technologies, to me, those are all the mechanisms, at least from my perspective, and there's so many other ways to describe sovereignty. But to me, these are the tools, the mechanical, practical tools to engineer a regional fiber economy that honors the sovereignty of those in it. It's one thing to say, oh, we're all able to raise whatever wool we want and we can, you know, anyone can have a sheep and, and that's great. That's, a, that's what I would call genetic sovereignty, which you don't have in the biosynthesis community. You can't, you can't go get one of those patented E. coli's and raise it in your garage, <laughs> but you can. <laughs> you can definitely raise um, a sheep that you might get a lamb from a neighboring farm and start raising your own flock. You know, there's genetic sovereignty. But when we come to economic empowerment and economic sovereignty, that's where to me the rubber starts to really hit the road when those flocks of sheep start to help bring in enough income to stabilize that family's economy. And that can only be done when we have just the right match between what we grow and the manufacturing equipment and the scale of that equipment. And so to me, I'm looking forward to that form of economic regional sovereignty. And that'll come when we're all wearing clothing that comes from our communities. It's very possible. It needs like, I think it's fairly imminent, in fact. <laughs> Thank you. Well, I think that's a great place to end with a very, very possible, very exciting look at the future. Thank you for listening to this episode of Soil to Soil, a podcast by Fibershed which is a nonprofit organization based in Northern California on the traditional and ancestral territory of the Coast Miwok and Southern Pomo people. We invite you to learn more about our work and the concepts described here by visiting www.fibershed.org. There you can join our newsletter to hear the latest updates or connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter by searching for Fibershed. You can find more about the projects you heard on this episode on our website, fibershed.org. And if you look in the show notes, we'll link specifically to some of the different research efforts and community efforts and different projects that Rebecca talked about. And of course, if you want to learn more, we'll be going deeper into some of these connections between fiber systems and soil health and climate health and waterways at our 2020 Wool and Fine Fiber Symposium. The theme is Healthy Soil and Sea, and you can find more information and tickets online at fibershed.org slash symposia. That's S-Y-M-P-O-S-I-A. Uh, it will be held as a virtual event November 12th through 14th, 2020. So please go ahead and reserve a ticket if you can join us. And if you're listening after this event has passed, you can head to that same webpage and look for video recordings of the different panels and presentations. It means so much to us that you're listening and we would love it if you could leave a review or rating on your podcast platform or share on social media and we'd love to know what's resonating with you. The show is produced by Fibershed with support from Whetstone Media and music by Aaron Harris, a member of the Northern California Fibershed Producer Network. <laughs>